0: Welcome to Search for Meaning. I'm Yoshi Zweibach. Thanks for joining me. Why, when, where, what should I be? My guest today is Dr. Afshin Emrani. He's a cardiologist with a background in microbiology. We're going to talk about his Jewish journey from Iran to the United States via Manchester, England. We'll talk about his social media presence, and how he's dipped his toe into politics and other social issues. And we'll also talk about COVID-19, vaccines, masks, and how we can keep each other, our children, our community safe without tearing each other apart at the same time. Stay tuned and be inspired. Afshin, thank you for making time for me. And thank you over the years for all sorts of great experiences getting to celebrate Benot Mitzvah and Bar Mitzvah and just getting to know you. I know when we were doing our pre-interview, Dr. Emrani said, don't make it about me, I wanna talk about these other things, but I have to ask you some personal questions. So tell me just a little bit about your own Jewish journey, where you grew up, your Jewish life growing up, and then coming to America and your Jewish life here. Tell me about your childhood.
1: Uh, Thank you for having me here and thank you for everything you do for the community um so i grew up as a child in iran uh i was about uh, 12 years old where when the uh, revolution hit and we left for uh first uh, lancaster and then manchester england um we lived there for about three years i was actually bar mitzvah there uh sort of haphazardly by some chabad people that showed up at our door and said how old is this kid and my father said He's 12. They said, when is he turn 13? Um, next week. This and was in Manchester? This was in Manchester, England. And uh, a few rabbis just came to our house, and we did a bar mitzvah, and that's how I became bar mitzvah. Uh, so that was three years in England, and then we moved to Los Angeles after that, and we've been here since then. Uh, I grew up in West Los Angeles, uh, in, went to university high school. Then went to uh, Santa Monica College, and then UCLA, and um, have been uh, enjoying my Jewish life through all of these uh, schools. Uh, Later went to UC San Diego for medical school, and then uh, came back to Los Angeles to do my internship, residency, and cardiology program.
0: So you have a lot of memories of your childhood in Iran.
1: I do. I still have images in my head of, of, uh, of my childhood. You know, you always sort of count in your native language. So I still count when I think, you know, when I'm by myself, I count in Farsi sometimes. And sometimes it takes me to uh, images of my childhood. Sometimes when I see people, it reminds me of uh, Iran. And yeah, I have a lot of memories of uh, myself growing up as a Jewish kid in Iran. Wow.
0: Wow. Um... I was listening recently to a book on Audible that tells the story of Paul Simon's musical journey, and he talks about growing up in Queens, which is where my father-in-law grew up, and they actually were in Hebrew school together, so I was really fascinated by that part of his story. But one of the things that Paul Simon says is that the music that you listen to between the ages of like 5 and 15, that becomes the music that is sort of a touchstone for the rest of your life, just like counting, just like, you know, your native language. Was that, is that part true for you too? Like is the music of your childhood in Iran, is that still the music that kind of touches your heart or, or not so much?
1: Yeah, I, I think so. I think I, you know, I have a special uh, section in my heart for the eighties music because <laughs> because that's the time that, you know, we were struggling a lot with uh, with the revolution and with moving to England and, and then Los Angeles uh, America and then listening to the music here, but definitely the the music of your childhood it speaks a different language. And we know this uh, as physicians with when we work with pe- people with severe dementia or depression, when they listen to the music of their childhood, it actually penetrates their brain and their soul and the way that they react. And it sort of awakens a part of their childhood and they, they react a, a lot better. You know, uh, Robin Williams, that uh, that movie... Uh, with uh, with uh, people who were sort of locked in, right, and they would catch the ball, and uh, you know the this the story of the music of how right, the music right. would penetrate them, and definitely the music of childhood, the Jewish music of my childhood definitely also is very very um, dear to me, and that's I think the, a lot of that, um, especially the high holiday Jewish music such as uh, El Nora Alila and and uh, you know the music of. Uh, th- that they sing you know at the hotel um, every year at the high high holidays that 's a sound that uh, pri- probably uh, is most uh, emotionally arousing to me um, and also believe it or not, the uh, Muslim uh, call to prayer uh, is in uh, intensely emotional for me, and and to this day, to I still hold it as one of the most beautiful uh, music. Uh, you could hear it that I can your, hear it.
0: You could hear it from your house when you were a kid. Yeah, yeah. I know when I my time living in Jerusalem, I could hear it um, from Bethlehem. Yes. My neighborhood was close enough that I could I could hear the call to worship, and there was something really powerful about it. Uh, even as someone who's not an Arabic speaker, like I couldn't understand it, but. But I could understand it in, in, in my heart a little bit. And then the other fun thing in my neighborhood in Jerusalem, um, I lived in a couple parts of Jerusalem, but where I lived most recently with my, when my family was there with me, we were right across the street from a Sephardic synagogue. And during the month of Elul, the slichot prayers, the early morning slichot prayers and the shofar blasts every morning, it would wake me up, but in, in a really pleasant way. It was always, I, I would always kind of smile. It wasn't like the annoyance. It was just this sweet thing, like, isn't this cool? This is happening, and I can hear it through my window.
1: It is, and I think that as a child, you are less jaded and um, less resistant to the world, and you take the world in much more easily, and I think that uh, you're more porous, so the music sort of penetrates your soul, and I think that that music that penetrates your soul when you don't have all these guards up uh, as adults, you know, stays with you for a long time.
0: So on your medical journey, why did you choose cardiology?
1: As I was uh, growing up, my mother would bring, uh, let's say, chicken home, uh, and I would start dissecting them. And that's one of the first uh, times I remember being interested in anatomy and uh, later uh, medicine. Uh, And as I went through medical school, I looked for uh, things that I could do for my patients. I didn't want to just uh be in a theoretical field i wanted to do uh things that i could that would help uh, the patients feel better and also prolong their life and i think that uh, arguably cardiology is uh, the place where you can uh, impact the patient's lives the most so for example uh, when i graduated medical school if you were diagnosed with heart failure you had a uh, 50 percent risk of dying within one to two years uh, today, somebody who's diagnosed with heart failure can live forever uh, with the medications that we have and with the treatments that we have. So that's very, very exciting. It's incredible.
0: Yeah. And to see my father, I, I shared with you at, at some point, my dad's a retired uh, surgeon and he trained as a heart surgeon for many years with Dr. Michael DeBakey uh, at Baylor. And whenever he remarks on those kinds of things, the progress that we've made, I mean, he tells me stories about when a breast cancer diagnosis was, you know, a death sentence. And thank goodness, with early detection and so many other treatments, you know, there are things that that once, like you said, you you know, you couldn't live with it. Now, now you can, Um, you know, over the years, I've. Become more and more aware of your social media following, and I'm I'm interested in sort of how that started. Was it something you kind of stumbled into, or was it something that you thought, oh, this is this is going to be a way for me to communicate? Whether because if for those uh, listeners who've ever followed any of uh, Afshin's posts or or seen some of his things on um, on Facebook and Instagram and also Twitter. Yes, you already told me you're not on TikTok. So. No. <laughs> gotta make space for the kids um but you know there's a combination of things around health related things um around sort of spiritual um spiritual wellness um uh you know blessings for the morning um that have jewish themes uh sometimes political things um so how did how did that all start
1: so it's it's very interesting my journey into social media i think uh I've tried to stay as true to myself as I can and, and, and that's, that's what's taken me through this journey of social media. I think one of the things that most people don't know about me is that I'm very um, uh, not, not people oriented, um, despite what you might think. I am, I'm an uh, introvert by many means. I enjoy being by myself mostly. I enjoy being uh, in solitude uh, I don't enjoy being in crowds, I don't enjoy talking to a lot of people. Um, I, I get terribly put off by noise and multiple people talking to me at the same time. Uh, but there is this uh, giant voice inside me uh, that uh, and ideas that I'd like to share. And so when I started putting out those ideas in words on social media, initially Facebook... Um, the, I, I noticed that people are gravitating towards them and listening to them and reading them and and annoying their husbands, mostly mostly women are reading these, annoying their husbands with the ideas that I put out. And it became interesting that, to me that actually people, people want to know what I think. And that's how I stumbled into, uh, into social media because oftentimes I don't want st- to stand around and talk to a bunch of people and tell them what I think. It's not who I am. Uh, but I do think a lot in solitude. And when I think a lot in solitude or when I, when I think a lot uh, during meditation, uh, whether it's prayer, whether it's walking alone, whether it's just being quiet for a long time, uh, I have thoughts and ideas that I'd like to share with people. I like to share them. But I don't like to share them in uh, a bar mitzvah with 300, 500 people uh, while drinking alcohol. That's not when I want to talk. I would like to talk to people one-on-one like we are doing here or one-on-one on on social media.
0: Mm. So interesting. What's been most surprising about that for you in terms of whether it's, you know, a particular um, post that you made that had an effect that maybe surprised you or uh, a relationship that developed because of that, you know, someone that you didn't know and now you've connected to in the virtual world um, or or just anything else about that that's Kind of surprised you. Uh,
1: a few things come to mind. Uh, one is that I have a lot of people that reach out to me that are non-Jewish, and they uh, they say the same thing to me that I wish I could become Jewish because of you. And I think some of them may have some religious connections um, of sorts. Some of them have not. Touch their religious parts in a long time, and when I start talking about Judaism or more my love for God or my love for community through Judaism or what whatever Judaism teaches, in my opinion, uh, they become interested in that part of in, in that part of uh, what I have to say. It's interesting. Um, By the
0: way, if you ever need to refer them to a rabbi, you know <laughs> I know you have a lot, um, but we can help people become Jewish.
1: Wonderful, wonderful, great place to be. Um, the second thing is uh, how uh, our, our struggles in life uh, are maybe individual. Uh, so I may I may struggle in my own way with let's say I've had uh, I've had uh, challenges with depression or anxiety, or I've had challenges with the Pers- you know with the Iranian Revolution. Everybody has their own individual uh, struggle. In life, but when you put that in writing or when you put your thoughts out there, uh, it becomes a, a shared path that a lot of people have have gone through. Maybe not in your particular way, but uh, but people have struggles in life, and knowing that others are struggling too sort of not only is a, a validation for for their own feelings, but it's also therapy. Um, and I feel I find that many people reach out to me and say that your words are therapy for me.
0: Interesting, yeah. You know, I think the the whole idea that you can—and this is relatively recent. I mean, probably going back in human uh, history, you know, no more than a hundred years or so. But with the advent of radio and television, the idea that you, your voice could be magnified in that way—certainly, you know, earlier with with books and publications—but the idea that uh, that almost anybody now can have a platform that can reach far beyond all those people at that bar mitzvah party, or you know, all the all your patients you've ever had, and because things can be shared, you know, you might have a post that's particularly resonant to folks, and it gets shared multiple times. You don't know you don't know who's seen it, but it can have that kind of reach. I'm wondering if there's been moments in that where you posted something, and then later you were like, "Oh dear," that wasn't taken the way I wanted it to, obviously we can take things down, and and I'm sure you've had some moments like that, but is there anything that stands out to you as like, oh, looking back on that, I really regret that post because of how it was taken, or maybe because of the tone of it itself, you know, or the content?
1: So, you know, I'm very, um, uh, very open about my political views, and most of the times that I've regretted uh, my posts have been my political posts. And the problem with political posts is that um, they get taken to an extreme form, and it's very difficult to be nuanced when you are writing one paragraph. Uh, so th- there are a lot of times for for you know that I've been attacked on on uh, social media because of my political views. So let's say I um, attack the ideas of a. Uh, of, of the Iranian regime, uh, but I am, you know, I am very pro-Iranian people, and that distinction doesn't come across correctly. And I say to myself, well, maybe I should have done a better job of explaining that, and I go back and look at that. Oftentimes, I think that social, the social media can polarize people and push people into becoming sort of an extremist in their opinion. Whereas what I found is that when you actually sit down and have a long form discussion like we are now, most of our most of us, even if we are in opposite on opposite political views, we are very, very similar in the way we think, because we basically we want freedom, we want uh, protection for our families, we want, you know, we want what's best for our country, we want what's best for other people who can't fend for themselves. I mean, these are general ideas that all of us want, but how we express them can be taken in one paragraph as a as a very extremist point of view, and that's that's those are the times that I think uh, I regret maybe what I've written,
0: and I think the the point about nuance is so important too. You know, it's first of all it's hard to do something nuanced that's bite size, and that's how people like to consume generally social media posts. They're generally you know fairly short, especially if you're talking about a tweet or something like that. Um, and I think in part and it might be in part due to social media, I think our world is a little less nuanced. And maybe I'm romanticizing the past, um, but I'm, I'm thinking about, I gave a sermon once about um, Ronald Reagan and Tip O'Neill as, as an example in the sermon of ideological foes who had great respect for each other and, and were friends. Um, you know Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Antonin Scalia you know, couldn't have been uh, more, more opposite in terms of their approach to the law, and yet they shared this love for opera, and because they worked together and they had that relationship, they were able to to build this beautiful friendship that I think ultimately is good for America, good for the court, you know um, but too often that doesn't happen and uh, and I think it's I think it's a challenge, you know how do you do that? but certainly sharing that vulnerability like you just did with me, but you know sharing that in in other settings, letting people know that like what we're looking for, is that kind of nuanced conversation. One thing I've found and I don't um I don't have a social media presence nearly as as large or as frequent as yours, but I have found, you know, every now and then something will happen in the comments. I'll post something and then in the comments things will start to get a little heated hmm. and sometimes even a little ugly and I don't I don't really know what to do, you know, cuz like on the one hand it's good for people to be able to talk about things and and have an exchange of ideas. But then sometimes it just becomes nasty. And and then it's like, do you shut it down? Do you, you know, do you moderate? It's also a matter of like, how much time do you have? You have patients to see. I've got a congregants to see. You know, it's like, uh, I was just trying to share a thought, an idea, and now it's turned into this thing. How do you, how do you moderate that when you get something that now there's, you know, dozens and dozens of comments and people are starting to get nasty? Is there, do you feel a responsibility to like get in and, and help people share more appropriately? Do you
1: shut it down? What do you do when it gets like that? So what I find uh, typically is that there is, uh, there's one or two people that, uh, that come in to the conversation that really don't know you and take you out of context and they don't know your past and they don't know all, everything else that you, you've written and they just arrive to a conversation with one paragraph or a few words and they take it out of context and they blow it into something that it's, blow it up into something that it's not. And, if uh, if I feel that there is uh, malicious thinking or or intentional misrepresentation, uh, what I what I do is because I don't have time to sit there and educate people like that is I just, I just block those people. It's just, you know, setting up healthy boundaries in life, I found are very, very important for you to be able to, to carry on. And, you know, I take things very personally. So, so if somebody says something to me, it's not, you know, uh, it, it, my conscience will eat at me for a long time. And I will, I will say to myself, did I really hurt people by what I said? Did I, uh, you know, without knowing unintentionally uh, cause harm to a number of people, you know, and, and it will eat at me. So I take, I take comments very personally. When I read them and if I feel like somebody's taking it the wrong way, I usually uh, usually shut that person down because I want people who actually have been engaged with the community and understand where we're coming from and and have the intention of elevating the level of conversation, not just, you know, bringing it down to a lot to a low level. And un- unfortunately, the the most politics uh, hit at the lowest level of uh, of our course. <laughs> Uh, you know, it's just there's very little that elevates you in politics, in my in my opinion. Most most of most of where you end up in politics is not good, and uh, so you know, political uh, political uh, ideolo- ideology. I think um, I try to try I try to express my opinion and walk away from it and I only shut it down when I think that somebody's being malicious. If somebody disagrees with me but they're respectful, I totally love that because now we don't have an echo chamber anymore. We have people who are, you know, disagreeing but they're doing what we want them to do respectfully disagreeing.
0: Right. Well and, that, and that's the Jewish idea of machloket that you can you can have a difference of opinion, you can do it with respect. And you can do it, ultimately, it's supposed to be le Shem Shemaim. It's supposed to be for the sake of heaven. So if if there's a disagreement and it's really about like how low can you go, you know, we don't want that. How do you distinguish knowing that, knowing you as I've come to know you over the years and and knowing your character, how do you distinguish, especially when you get into politics? um, And, you know, obviously the, the Trump administration was a time of deep division, not the only time we've ever had deep division in our country, but certainly in my memory, um, and I think we're close to the same age it was you know as divided as as, as I remember in my lifetime um, how do you how do you make that distinction between someone's policies that you might ap- appreciate and a character that you might not appreciate uh, and we could use President Trump as an example or any other politician you'd want we'd say no I like you know I like this political stance, and I like this posture vis-a-vis Israel or Iran or whatever it is, but when it comes to the person's moral character or the way that person holds himself or comports himself, I I can't support that. How do you make that distinction? Because one of the things that I think is challenging is if someone puts you in the bucket of this person's a Trumper or this person, you know, loves, you know, Hillary Clinton or Joe Biden or, you know, you name it, any politician— Particularly, some that that might be seen as more divisive. You know, how do you make a distinction between? Well, I might support this person's policies, but that doesn't mean I uh, I hold this person up as a moral, you know, uh, paradigm that I would I would uh, support, or I I wouldn't want my son or daughter to take that characteristic. How do you make that distinction in, in politics?
1: So I think to for me that's pretty. Um, Uh, Simple to do Uh, I look at I look at policies and I look at what I want that person to accomplish and I only see that person who is a um, Highly high political level person. It's a president of the United States or whatever uh, whoever that 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 person is uh, to to get me to where I need to be uh, in terms of policies so I'll give you two, two opposite, uh, completely opposite people. Uh, Trump and Obama. Uh, I uh, was very much against most of Obama's uh, foreign policy. Uh, I disagreed with almost everything that he did uh, in terms of uh, foreign policy and some of what he did uh, at home. Uh, with Trump, it was the exact opposite. I was very much... Uh, for his foreign policy, almost one hundred percent, and agreed with some of a lot of the stuff that he did at home. Uh, which one would I be, want to be, have as a friend? Which, which one would I want to be friend? Uh, I would love to have my uh, friend be Obama. Uh, I would love for him to ha- for my children to hang out with him. I would not let my children hang out with Trump. Uh, because in a per, as a person and uh, as a um, as let's say uh, as a clergy person, uh, this is this is a, a failure of a person uh, in terms of getting me to the policies that I want. Uh, to me, the things that are important are uh, the the uh, stance towards Israel. Uh, number one, number two is the protection of United States. Number three, uh, lower taxes and small government. These are the, the, the most important things that, uh, that, are, um, that I look at when it comes to policy. And to me, uh, Trump got me there. Um, do I want him? Uh, do I think of him as a clergy? Do I think of him as a highly moral person? Do I think of him as a, as a friend? Uh, no. Uh, Obama he He got me very far away from what I want in those three things th- three categories or four categories, uh, but when I listen to him speak, uh, I'm in awe of him he he's a he's a great orator he uh, when I see him how he deals with his wife and he's with his daughters uh, this is what I want i I would want my my daughters to date somebody like that uh, and I wouldn't want them to date somebody like Trump but to me uh I, do, I don't look for a friend or a clergy person in, in, a, uh, in a politician. I look for somebody who gets the politics, the policies done.
0: There's something that makes a lot of sense about that. Um, my grandfather used to say, um, he said, always vote for the incumbent because he's already stolen everything he needs. And the new guy's going to come in and have to try to catch up. You know, And that was obviously a very cynical and kind of jaded view of politics. Um, and, and sometimes what we want it, 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 from our politicians, and maybe even we could do the opposite in some ways with our clergy, you know, is we, we kind of want them to be everything. And uh, and maybe it's healthier to just say, nope, you know, this guy is, as a human being, <laughs> I'd give him a, you know, C minus. But uh, in terms of the policies that I care about, um, you know, I'm happy with them. My, my concern about sort of the coarsening of the discourse and about um, um, flawed Politicians who have character flaws is that I worry that it normalizes the character flaw you know that it that it also sends a message that and it's okay to be that kind of person um, you know and I, I don't i don't know what to do with that um, because obviously those other policy things do matter you know just because the person has a character that you would affirm i 'll take Jimmy Carter as an example in terms of you know um, a man who cares about philanthropy, a man who um, is active in his church. Uh, a man who has integrity. I think everyone would agree, like, yeah, that's that's Jimmy Carter. He's also said some things about Israel that are deeply problematic. Uh, on the other hand, he also helped negotiate the Sinai Accords, which, uh, in terms of Israel's long-term well-being, that peace with Egypt that is that is held all these years, um, you know, 50 years, years—it's one of the best things that ever happened to Israel. So, you know, very complicated on all those levels. Um, but the comments that he's made about Israel and apartheid, I, I, I can't possibly support, you know. So what do you do with that? I want to pivot to uh, to to something that's been happening recently that you and I had some email exchanges about that I think was very painful to both of us, and it's uh, it's something that um, that your your teacher and mine Rabbi David Wolpe has been going through um, with uh, really a, a lot of communal anger um, being projected at him in a way that I've found to be wildly inappropriate, incredibly disrespectful. And unfair, even if you disagree with the person, like you have a right to disagree with the person. Um, but how do you voice those comments? And what was not possible 15 years ago, because pre-social media, you just you, you couldn't do some of the things that are happening, uh, sort of the, the very public um, comments that are being made about Rabbi Wolpe. This has now become uh, a very public thing, but there was a, a photo of him at the Super Bowl without his mask on. Uh, and, uh, we could easily assume that he had taken the mask off just to take the photo and then put his mask back on, which I'm sure was the case. But then it became uh, a whole thing about how is it that you could demand that parents have their kids wear masks at school and here you are without your mask on. And, and the comments, uh, I, I found to be, as I said, inappropriate and unkind, um, you know, that kind of coarsening of, of the conversation and the expectations that people have. You know, we expect uh, our politicians, perhaps, we expect our politicians to be, you know, perfect. Uh, and we expect, uh, or, or maybe not, you know, and then, and then we say, okay, I, I don't expect them to be perfect in terms of character, so I'm just going to go with the person who has the policies I care about. But when it comes to our clergy, um, there, there are sometimes what seems like impossible expectations how do you navigate that and uh, and how have how has this affected you just as someone who's a, you know a student of his and a friend
1: so first of all let's let's distinguish between a uh, politician and a clergy person the the politician never comes there and tries to try to tries to teach you um, about moral or ethical standing. That's not their job. Their job is to get poli- policies done. So I elect my politicians to uh, to enact the policies that I think are best for our country and our community. I don't expect them to be clergy people. So that's, that's very clear to me. And um, on the other hand, the clergy person comes, in, comes from a per- place of moral standing. They, they represent, let's say, the Torah and the words of God and the ethical and moral standard. And you expect, uh, or one, one thinks we should expect that person to live uh, cl- as close as possible to those words um now all of us are human beings and all of us are mortal and all of us are uh, are as closer to sin <laughs> unquote unquote than we are to to uh, the words of torah uh but having said that i think that people expect their clergy to try their best to live according to the words that they preach um Rabbi Wolpe is a, I consider, a dear friend. I consider him a teacher. I consider him a, a world leader in Judaism. He is extremely special. Uh, he has uh, presented the Torah to Jews and non-Jews all over the world. He has uh, been extremely uh, um, uh, vocal about the value of Judaism in, in every aspect of life. And he writes... Uh, you know unlimited amount of uh, 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 words uh, all over the world uh, to teach people about Judaism and I think he's got he's had uh, many people turn on to Judaism and I think for that uh, we, sh- we are all indebted to him and he's got a great platform uh, and I think that when I see people attack a rabbi that I respect I disagree with him on many, many, many things, many levels, and I've verbally expressed that to him. Um, he knows where I disagree with him, uh, but again, you disagree with somebody when, that matters um, when you respect that person. So, I don't go and disagree with some random person that whose whose opinion I dis, uh, It do, doesn't matter to me. I I only disagree with people whose opinions matter to me, because I don't want to waste my time on other people. He is somebody whose opinion matters to me, and I disagree with him on many levels. But disagreement has to be respectful, as we established. But if you expect your rabbi to be somebody who is holy or lives a holy life, you should talk to that person in a holy way. You should not go out there and say the things that were said i mean it was it was heartbreaking i lost sleep that night reading those words um somebody who has been through uh bar mitzvahs and weddings and uh and uh, perhaps uh, burials and and uh and many life events with all these people that were making those comments uh you you know you you may think that he is wrong you may think that he made a mistake you, but there is there is a way to express your feeling and your anxiety and your anger perhaps without crossing that border of being um you know breaking that holiness and i think that when you when you you know the problem is that when you Break that barrier. Where you when you cut that curtain that is respect and holy, you don't just you don't injure the person that's that's across from you. You injure yourself. You injure your community. You injure your children. You break down everything that's that's holy about our community. When you when you start attacking a rabbi, I mean, I understand if a rabbi, let's say, uh, has done uh, fraud or let's say has done something completely immoral or, or illegal. Okay, that's a separate issue. But if you have uh, simple disagreements of opinion, you don't break any barrier. You know, to me, it's like being under the chupa. You know, you take that glass and you break it, you can't put it back together. And that chupa is, okay, you know what? You have multiple chuppahs in life. You know, you marry, your, you marry your best friend, you marry your wife, you marry your children, you marry the Torah, you marry God, you marry your rabbi, you marry your community. And you can't, when you break that, break that holiness you can't you can't get it back you can't put it you can't put Humpty Dumpty back together again it right. just doesn't work so there is a point that you don't cross right. and it's very very painful now having said that I completely understand the angst of where people are coming from and when it, where when you have little children okay you have a five-year-old child and a seven-year-old child that are not vaccinated that cannot attend their brother's bar mitzvah that is turning 13 because they're not they're not vaccinated it's very very painful so when you see that the mama bear papa bear comes out <laughs> and they you know the the only way that you can some people can handle it is by swinging and throwing punches and that's what happened that that day
0: right yeah i also you know obviously i see this through some of the similar lenses that you see it through and then as a rabbi myself you know, I think about my profession, and 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 certainly in the rabbinic community, the idea that wow, if a if a congregation, and obviously it was not the entire congregation, but if you know if many members of a congregation could treat David Wolpe like this, who is a giant, um, he is a you know a, a model and a teacher to every rabbi in North America and and many around the world, uh, a noted scholar, you know, gifted author and teacher. I mean, you know, one of the Hador, one of the greats of our generation um, one wonders oh my goodness you know what what does that mean for what does that mean for the rest of us um, so there's there's that level for me there's also just a level of the coarsening of discourse um, you know it's possible to say rabbi I really think that that was, you know, a a bad policy decision on your part or um or uh, you know a a hurtful post or you know whatever it is there's 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 ways you might respond to that but uh the kinds of comments that people were making were, you know, beyond the pale from my perspective. Also because it's a, you know, it's a, a fairly public forum, you know, thousands of people can see that, tens of thousands of people can see that. Um you know, you just you don't know how that's going to be viewed out there in the broader world. So so I found it troubling on you know on all of those levels. But I really think that and that's why I appreciate these kinds of conversations because I I think we can model what it is to share all sorts of Common values that we cherish and also disagree about some fundamental things i know you 've had um, some really great conversations, both on the political level and around some of these issues, including you know vaccinations and masking and things like that, um, with a, a mutual friend of ours who 's a member of the temple and My sense is um, that you both have grown in that conversation, you know not always seeing things the exact same way, but having a shared regard for one another and respect for each other's intellect and um and also just giving people the benefit of the doubt and knowing that hey at the end of the day you know Afshin wants good things for the world and you know Yoshi wants good things for the world they might not see it the exact same way but um, but there's so much they have in common. So I want to now pivot to that conversation about vaccination and masking. Um, as a physician, although infectious disease and epidemiology is not your background, you're you're an MD and you deal with this stuff all the time. Um, and as a cardiologist, you know you you have to you have to be thinking about the overall well-being of your patients. Um, so how how have you approached this for yourself? Um, in terms of vaccination and, uh, and in terms of other public health um, recommendations and, and mandates and requirements. Uh, just in terms of navigating this pandemic, what has been your own practice and what's the advice that you've been giving your patients in that regard?
1: So let me start by saying that um, I have a bachelor's degree in microbiology. Uh, I, w- I had a keen interest in, uh, in microbes uh, growing up. And so I spent a lot of time uh, studying that field. It's a I've spent uh, 20 years in emergency rooms uh, in my life. Uh, I I spend most of my time now doing internal medicine with cardiology. So I'm not I don't have a narrow uh, view of the patient. I actually take care of. Most of my patients, as an internal medicine physician, as a family practitioner, a lot of times they stay with me for everything, and they bring their kids in to see me uh, after they graduate from their pediatricians. Uh, So so my view is much larger than just a cardiologist. And as you may recall, I was one of the first voices in uh, February of uh, 2020. Uh, I reached out to you personally, and I I reached out to... I reached out to Rabbi Wolpe and I said, I really recommend that you close down the the temples and you stop having uh, Shabbat services and Friday night services. Even though I sounded crazy at that time, everybody told me I'm crazy. And I said, listen, this pandemic is going to be very large, much larger than what everybody is thinking. And it's going to affect every way that we live. And uh, it it ended up being that way.
0: No, I remember that very well. And, and, um, because there was a, uh, a parent in our school who was exposed and came down with COVID very early on, we ended up being one of the first elementary schools to actually close. And, uh, and we pivoted to online services. We'd, we'd been streaming already, but we pivoted to online only. And I remember very well, you'd email me saying, you know, thank you. God bless you. And, um, and, and, and it was the right decision at the time. Yes. But obviously, over the course of the next two years, we've learned a lot more. So, yes. so please keep going. Tell me, tell me where you are now.
1: So as, as, we, as we proceeded with the pandemic, uh, we learned that the uh, mortality rate of the virus was not 10%, uh, as was told to us at the beginning. And the mortality, the, uh, what we call the IFR, started dropping to something around 0.6% with the first virus and later with the Delta. And the idea of flattening the curve was so that the hospitals would not get overwhelmed. And the idea of wearing a mask was sort of as a compromise to lockdowns. Um, What I ended up seeing in my practice, and this is the reason that I became so so vocal against mandates, uh, was that the cost of lockdowns, lockdowns being uh, mandates, lockdowns being uh, not being p- present in person, lockdowns being actually masks, because masks cover your face, which, you know, one of the first things we say is, when do you see the, say the Shema in the morning is when you see the face of a friend, right? So the face is very extremely important, especially in children. One of the things that I saw early on is that uh, my elderly patients be, started developing dementia much faster. So let's say somebody was sort of at the cusp of dementia, they actually be ha- developed full dementia very, very quickly. Then I saw that the elderly patients are falling down and breaking their hips. So these are people that are not having interactions. Their families are not visiting them. They are uh, falling down and breaking their hips. They're getting, becoming dementia. There is me- mental illness going on. And then last year I had more uh, young uh, children hurting themselves, causing self-harm, uh, and a few cases of suicide than I have ever seen in my practice. And I saw this as as a direct uh, uh, cause of this uh, lockdown. Again, different components of lockdown, but lockdown. Uh, people not being able to interact with each other. So I realized that the there is a cost that is larger than the virus itself. So, so then I saw this uh, paper coming out of uh, San Francisco, the Stanford, uh, called the uh, Great Barrington Declaration. And the Great Barrington Declaration was, again, again about this idea of, uh, of, let's get on with life, let's stop the uh, lockdowns, let's stop the ma- mandates, and protect the people who are most vulnerable, and let everybody else live their life normally. And it's sort of a beautiful balance between, okay, let's have everybody on lockdown and, and, and uh, you know, have nobody on lockdown. So it's, it, it was a way to protect the uh, people who are at highest risk which are the elderly and the people with multiple medical problems, but also allowing the children and those who are vaccinated to get back to life so that they don't suffer all these other things such as dementia and delayed care in medical practice, delayed cancer screening, uh, depression, anxiety, uh, insomnia, alcoholism, uh, suicide, uh, smoking. I mean, there's a lot that is on the other side of the formula. So that's one, one, one part of it. The second part of it is that I think that you know, I want to make sure that everybody understands that I'm very pro-vaccine. I have been vaccinated myself three times. All of my, my, my family has been vaccinated. All of my patients, I think I have uh, some, some 90% vaccination rate uh, in my practice, which is incredible given that I have a lot of uh, ethnic, uh, you know, I have a very heavily ethnic practice, but, but you know, we've been able to uh, get the patients to get vaccinated. Uh, so I'm very, very pro-vaccine. What I'm against is two things, I'm against uh, mandates because I think mandates end up hurting people uh, and they end up hurting, pe- hurting the most vulnerable part of the uh, population: the people who are poor, the people who need to work, uh, the mothers who need back to get back to work. You know, the African American population who that is uh, hesitant in terms hesitant in terms of getting vaccination, and perhaps perhaps Hispanics. It
0: hurts them because it causes them to lose employment opportunities. Be- yes, if they're okay,
1: got it. Yes, it, it hurts them from from coming back to work. Uh, we have uh, some some. True anti-vaxxer uh, people who are want, who want to work uh, in in hospital settings and who are otherwise healthy that should be able to work wh- when the hospitals needed them but they were fired from the hospitals so that's the other reason that I was against mandates. The third thing or the second part of that anti-mandate part is the children. I think children are uh, are a separate group that need to be taken by themselves and not be mixed sort of with the population. Why? Number one, children, if you remember when when COVID started, one of the the most wonderful parts of COVID, there was a lot of sadness, but the best part of COVID was that we saw nobody under 20 died. Nobody under 20 was ending up in the hospital and dying. And that was just like such a hopeful, you know, we were looking for just a ray of light and that was it. And so many times we went back and said, what was it about these children that they're not dying where everybody, you know, as as the age goes higher, they die. Well, we found out there are multiple reasons. One of the reasons being that they're getting exposed to coronaviruses over and over again in daycare or, you know, children get uh, colds all the time and that cold sort of trains their immune system they also have t-cell immunity because their thymuses are over overactive and adults over the age of 20 don't have that and so they have a memory part of their immune system that protects them so children are sort of like a different group of people because they're they're extremely low risk given to this day i mean i understand that there are children that die of covid I, i get that but the, the percentage is extremely, extremely low. And you know that happens with, with the flu and that happens with even co- regular coronaviruses. But the percentage is extremely low, number one. Number two is that they get exposed over and over again to these viruses, which protects them. Number three is that they, um, they have a, a, um, a uh, thymus gland that, that is uh, very, very healthy and and protects them so that's important to to know also and number 4 is that um, a lot of children were already exposed to the first virus and the second virus and the, and and now omicron i mean i think a large part part of the uh, children uh, maybe some something close to 70 80% of them have had omicron and what bothered me is that And and still to this day bothers me is that the medical community and the politicians and the government sort of doesn't look at uh, natural immunity as as if it's a thing. And more and more we're seeing uh, through the medical literature that no natural immunity, even today through the New England Journal of Medicine, it showed that the natural immunity was very important. The CDC data two weeks ago showed that natural immunity is very important, even, even perhaps as important as having two shots of vaccines. So to me... What I see is, okay, here's a group of uh, people, children, on, you know, let's say K through 12 or whatever, you know, under the age of 20 even. Uh, they're extremely low risk. They've been um, hit by the virus maybe once or twice, and they've recovered from it. Why do we have to make them suffer in terms of uh, putting on mandates that are unnecessary? Uh, we know that children need to interact with each other and play, be, be uh, facing each other and look at each other in, in the face and talk to each other. One of the most important reasons I think most of us put our children in school, and especially in Jewish school, is is to socialize. It, I mean, for me, I think it's right, less... But at
0: this point, Afshin, sorry to interrupt, but like we're not... I don't know of any schools that aren't allowing for in-person instruction anymore. We're not there anymore, right? So the big question is... Should kids be vaccinated, whether they've had the, you know, the, um, The coronavirus or not, should they be vaccinated? And you know what kind of masking regulations, if any, should be there? Because I think I I couldn't agree with you more that socialization really matters. It's kind of interesting. I'm thinking about the irony of it. When we started, you talked about your own desire to be by yourself and you know not be in those Mm -hmm. large settings, but you recognize that there is a human need to be with others. And I certainly feel that when we when we had our first services and we were one of the first synagogues to come back, partly because we. We have so many great outdoor venues where we can do that. But when we started coming back for regular Friday night service um, together, it just—it was so much better. It was so much better to be together. So you know, agreed a hundred percent. But what should be, and 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 I understand your um, your concerns about mandating. But forget about mandating, just recommendation. As a doctor, you know, are you recommending that everybody who's eligible be vaccinated? And, and in terms of masking, where should that be, especially for kids who can't be vaccinated or won't be vaccinated? And then you have adults who, uh, who, who might have a medical exemption, for example, working in a school. How do we keep them safe, too? So, you know, when the rubber kind of meets the road in those areas, what's your, what's your advice to your patients?
1: So, uh, anybody who is at risk should be vaccinated and boosted. No question about that. I want to make that very, very clear. So, uh, you know, if, if you are uh, over the age of, let's say, 50, 50, uh, let's say you have any risk factors, uh, you know, even, even if you are younger, even if you're a child and you, let's say, you have some sort of diabetes or immune, autoimmune disease or something like that, you need to be vaccinated. So I think that if we want to think about mandates for vaccination, we should think about mandating those who are at high risk but do, the, but clearly, the majority of people who are at your school or are are, are k through twelve the vast majority in ninety seven ninety nine percent of them are at low risk, so I don't think this the the state or the government should mandate that the children get vaccinated, okay so Especially, that I
0: understand, but would you recommend kids who aren't at high risk just a recommendation would you say, yeah, it's better to be vaccinated, what's the harm? What's the harm in being vaccinated? Why shouldn't we all just get vaccinated? Same thing with like mumps and measles. The, the most people who get the mumps and measles as kids don't die. But, but there's a significant enough percentage, and we're talking about millions and millions and millions of kids, that then when we just do the math, you, you are talking about thousands of people who don't have to die. So again, setting aside mandating, why not have everybody at least recommend that everybody get vaccinated?
1: So I don't know the answer to that because I don't have uh, the uh, safety data from Pfizer and uh, Moderna. And it's now Moderna, we know that uh, in young men uh, has a higher level of uh, myocarditis and cardiomyopathy and heart inflammation. So it's mostly Pfizer, but we don't have the data for that. And it makes me very uncomfortable for children who are extremely low risk for me to tell them what to do, I'm not talking about government mandate, for me to tell them what to do, when their their chances of uh, overcoming uh, uh, COVID, uh, now Omicron, is extremely, extremely high, and the risk of long COVID is extremely, extremely low in children. We have the data now. And I don't have the Pfizer data, and they have not released it. The FDA has not released it. So it, it makes me uncomfortable to, to make that vast recommendation to children. I think it's a decision that should be made between uh, the parents and the pediatrician. And I think that whatever decision they make is fine. Now, there are a couple of times that I would say hi, I would highly recommend it. If the patient is at risk, if the, if the kid is at, at significant risk, then I would say, yeah, you should do it. If the, I feel like there is a risk of long COVID, yes, I would say. And until recently, we thought that there was maybe long COVID, but the data shows there isn't in children. And then the third thing is, if you think that the virus is easily transmissible by, from one person to another person, but the vaccine completely blocks it, so that now you're responsible for other people. You're not responsible just for yourself. You're responsible for other people. And we know that that's not true with the vaccine either. So I'm not at a level that I can Wait, go,
0: it's not true that the vaccine makes it impossible for it to be transmitted, but it is true that the vaccine lowers transmission.
1: By a little, not by a lot. So again, if you're, if you're uh, lowering the risk of transmission by 10 to 20%, does that give you the right to mandate somebody to get vaccinated? You know, these are questions that I don't know the answer to. But I feel that I'm not comfortable now. If let's say if it blocked it completely and it would end the uh, end the pandemic, sort of, sort of to say, then yes, I think that this you know government, you know, let's say the the greater mother or father would be able to tell us to do that. But if it's only reducing by ten or twenty percent and we don't have the risk benefit, you see that the the where I come from is everything that I do in medicine is based on risk-benefit ratio. So my belie- my strong belief is that you have to do informed consent for every treatment. So if you come to me with, with let's say, ele- elevated cholesterol, and I want to treat your cholesterol, I look at, okay, if I give you a statin, for example, what is the risk of the statin? Because there is a risk. And what is the potential benefit? And I look at that and I make a recommendation. Do I think that the risk-benefit ratio in all children it warrants me telling children to get vaccinated no no I, i'll be honest with you i think that I think that you know most children can just get over omicron and they're done and and they they have the immunity and they don't need a vaccination that's my That's my yeah. personal belief it's, it seems like the
0: biggest concern you know or the biggest question in this is in the risk benefit is if there's you know a real risk to being vaccinated. Again, forget about mandating or forget about sort of questions around you know, our, our rights as, as people, what, what, what are we entitled to in terms of uh, the decisions we get to make. But set that aside for a moment. Just, just from a, a health point of view, you know, if the uh, potential benefit is real, and the risk of getting the vaccine is fairly negligible, then everybody should be vaccinated who's eligible. If on the other hand, you know, there's real danger to being vaccinated and the benefit is fairly low, then okay, you know, let's do it case by case by case by case. And I guess for me as a non-physician, just trying to make sense of it, um, and I've spoken to, you know, to doctors like you and to doctors like my father and also to epidemiologists and infectious disease experts and, you know, tried to navigate it Myself, um, but you know, what is the risk to being vaccinated for most people?
1: So no, so it's not it's not the risk to most people. It's the risk to children. So I think that if you look at the risk benefit ratio for somebody who is over the age of sixty five, uh, there is no question that the vaccine reduces hospitalization and mortality by twenty to forty fold. So if you're 65 and you come to me and you say, should I get vaccinated? I said, don't even ask the question. Just go do it. Right. Because the, the, the risk is so small compared to the benefit that I don't even want you to ask me that question. Just go do it. Right. But for children, it's very different because the, the risk of COVID is so incredibly small. And I don't know what the risk of the vaccine is. So I cannot compare them.
0: Well, we do know what the risk of the vaccine is. Millions of children have been vaccinated.
1: Yes, but not uh, the, the uh, six to uh, five, you know, the six month and five year and 12 year. And, you know, we don't right, know but the we numbers don't have that there. For,
0: we don't have that for grownups either. You don't have that for yourself, but you're vaccinated. I'm vaccinated. And we don't know what the 10 year consequences of oh, that no, no, will be, I'm, but we know that around other vaccines.
1: No, no, I don't. I don't okay. So I'm not looking at a 10-year um, outcome in a vaccine. I don't, the, vaccines, the, the side effect of vaccines don't work like that. The side effect of a vaccine is you get a side effect or you don't get a side effect. If you get a side effect, you're going to get it within a short period right. of time. All I'm
0: saying is millions so, of children have been vaccinated in America, in Israel, around the world, and so we've seen what those side effects are. So what's well, the I, risk to vaccinating a kid?
1: I don't know what those numbers are. That's what I'm trying to say. I don't know what those numbers are, and I don't trust the data that's out there. And Pfizer has not put out the data, and neither has the FDA. This is my concern. My concern is that we don't have good data for children. This is my concern. I think that the real data exists for adults, but it doesn't exist for children. And it really, really concerns me. Especially, it concerns me when Pfizer refuses to uh, to release their data, and when FDA refuses to release the data. It really, really concerns me because because there is, there is a history of of problems with, with when they don't release data.
0: Right, right. So, what's in terms of pro, you know, sort of predicting the future? Obviously, it's hard for any of us to do that. Um, where do you see this playing out over the next 12 months, 24 months? Uh, I've been told by uh, one epidemiologist, Larry Brilliant, Doctor Larry Brilliant, that you know, these are typically three-year cycles, and so we're just starting the third year. Which, whenever I share that um, that insight from him, people say, "Oh, dear Lord, you know, another year of this. It won't be." The same as the previous two years, but meaning that we won 't really be on the other side of it uh, for another year what's what 's your sense of how these things play out
1: so whenever i've studied uh, um, whenever i 've studied uh, different uh, pandemics uh, the the cycles that i 've looked at are about four year, four year long uh, now let 's not forget that um, we didn't have the incredible technology and the blessing of the vaccines that we've had uh, this time. So, a significant portion of the population has been vaccinated, and a significant portion of the population has had uh, multiple infections. So, may, they may have had the pri- the original virus uh, SARS-CoV-1, or 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 they may have had the um, they may have had the Delta, or they may have had o- Omicron, and so. Th- There's a significant uh, portion of the population that has had uh, infection and uh, natural immunity, and there's a significant uh, portion of the population that has had uh, vaccination. So this is sort of unique to this uh, pandemic. And I think that my outlook is that Omicron was the type of natural vaccine uh, that we could have made if the pharmaceutical companies had focused on it, because it it has the uh, it, it has the it has uh, the uh, capacity to infect large numbers of people, and it 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 really is incredible how fast fastly went through the population. It completely uh, removed Delta. It, it, I mean, Delta basically doesn't exist anymore. Uh, it's like uh, Omicron is like ninety nine point eight percent now of of all COVID. So it it overtook Delta, it infected a large portion of the population, and now it's coming down, and all that population now has natural immunity. So so as far as I can see, I think that we're nearing the, the end of the pandemic, and the virus will become endemic. So it will be around, you know, every year, this, this virus, you know, COVID is never going to go away, it's, it, it's it's not possible for it to go away, we're going to have it. The issue is um, that one of the things that we made a mistake with the government made a mistake with is that when they negotiated the contract with Pfizer and moderna they didn 't negotiate for them to vaccinate for example India or Africa or other kind of, you know continents that that have only twenty thirty percent vaccination rates you know they couldn 't afford it uh, the, you know the u s government gave them a lot of money i mean this, this is this the, the, the uh, COVID vaccine is probably the most profitable um, drug that Pfizer has ever made. Um, you know, let's say the last. Can't,
0: it can't be more profitable than Viagra. Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> it probably the, the curve of Omicron looks like Viagra, but that's a different <laughs> thing. So I'm sure we're going to delete. I didn't delete mean this for the podcast the... <laughs> to go X-rated, but you know. <laughs> let's see if we can take that one up. Um, so I think. Uh, I think that um, if you look at the most profitable drug that Pfizer or any any company has made, it was probably uh, Humira. Humira had a profit of something, if I remember correctly, about twenty billion dollars, uh, and. Uh, this uh, This vaccine has a profit of somewhere around seventy billion dollars, sixty five, seventy billion dollars within two two years. So this is really, really incredibly profitable. And what the government said, okay, we'll pay for everything. One of the things I think, from my point of view, that was a mistake is that they should have negotiated that, uh, you know, they, they, these companies make vaccines that go to, con, con, you know, areas that cannot get their vaccines, so, you know, such as Africa, because these people are going to travel to U.S. and they're going to sure. ke- keep reinfecting. You know, it's not, the world is not a closed place. So uh, so, so, if you ask me what, I, what do I think is going to, to happen in the U.S., I think that we have the worst over already. I think that uh, the pandemic is 95% done. I think that um, COVID um, hospitalizations in the US are down about 70% in most places, reinfection rates are down maybe 80%. Um, So I'm seeing very, very, very positive development. There are areas of US that are having zero COVID. I mean, it's, it's pretty impressive. Um, I think that by the end of March, at the rapidity uh, that Omicron is moving, uh, we'll be done with the pandemic and it will become endemic. And my gut feeling is somewhere around April, uh, you know, US is going to say, okay, we're done and, and move on with, with our lives. And by, by the time the summer comes this year, uh, we're going to have everything behind us, and we're not going to have to talk about COVID anymore, and we're not going to fight with each other over COVID anymore. I'm sure we'll find something better to fight over.
0: <laughs> well, Afshin, usually um, I ask someone towards the end of our conversation to give us something helpful to think about. And you just did. Um, But I'm really grateful to you for your perspective and for the time that you've spent um, with me today. And I just hope that going forward, all of us can have that kind of open-heartedness where we can disagree with each other, we can agree with each other, we don't always have to disagree, um, and we can do so with a a sense of a shared love for Israel, for our community, for humanity, um, because none of those are mutually exclusive, um, and a a desire to keep learning and growing and uh, and getting to know each other in deep ways. So thank you for your time, and, uh, and thank you for your wisdom.
1: Thank you. Thank you for having me.
0: Well, that's our podcast. Thank you to Dr. Afshin Imrani for making time for us. Thank you for joining us. I really, really appreciate it. Thanks to Raz Husseini, my editor, David Cates, who co-composed our theme music, which features a vocal by Josh Goldberg. Hey, make sure to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss any episodes and tell a friend about it. Maybe they'll want to join in. Stay safe, stay healthy, take care of yourself and take care of others. And let's be kind and gentle to each other, please. Thanks for joining.